Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to episode 61 of the Cloudcast. Uh, we're back, and we're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios from Raleigh, North Carolina. Aaron, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, doing good. It's a, it's a really good night. My Clemson Tigers are beating up your Deacons pretty bad right now on, on ESPN, so yeah, it's, I'm, it's, I'm good. It's ugly. So uh, we got some news with you that we'll get to at the end of the show, but uh, why don't we get back into it? It's been a little while since we, we fired up the show, um, so thanks to everybody for being patient with us. Um, tonight, we're going to dive into a space that's really, really critical for the web and cloud computing, but kind of new for listeners of the podcast, or at least you know topical for the podcast. Um, so you know, in the past, we've talked about some of the new platform-as-a-service application development platforms, so Cloud Foundry and OpenShift and uh, Apprenda and things like that. Uh, but tonight, we're going to dive a little bit deeper. We're going to start looking at the concept of NoSQL databases or sort of non-relational databases. And tonight, we've got a, a really great guest. Um, our guest is Justin Sheehy, who's a CTO of a company called Basho. Uh, Basho, one of the sort of up-and-coming uh, distributed system NoSQL databases. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. It's really my pleasure to be on. So, uh, Justin, you know, for, for folks that may not be familiar with Basho or, you know, just sort of you, um, give us a little bit of background, sort of, um, you know, where your career's gone, and then, you know, uh, who is Basho, what sort of technologies do you guys bring to market, you know, what are you doing um, out, out in the marketplace today? Sure. Uh, I'm Basho's CTO, uh, like you said. I've been with the company for our whole existence, which we really, uh, the first few of us, pulled together at the end of 2007. Okay. Um, before that, uh, I've mostly done things that are related in one way or another to distributed systems. Uh, I worked at Akamai for about five years, and I worked at the Miter Corporation, which is a federal contractor to various government agencies. Um, so a lot of my work has had to do with either really large distributed systems or mission assurance, you know, high assurance kind of resilient systems, things like that. So that's, that's really the, the kind of work I've mostly done. Okay, okay, and 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 Basho's, uh, you know, a company. It's a you know type of company that we're seeing evolving more and more. Um, you guys are a a company that makes a, an enterprise version of a product and an open source version of of the product, or at least a similar variation of the code. T- talk about you know the technologies that you guys build and the, and the types of problems that that Basho type uh, you know tends to try and solve. Yeah, sure. So. The first product we built uh, is Rioc, which is our database product. And, you know, Rioc, it's a distributed database, meaning that the database isn't on a machine, but on a cluster of machines. And, you know, they're all created equal. There's no master, slave, or complicated topology. Okay. And it's really all about providing scalability that's just linear, right? If you want more throughput or capacity, just add that many more machines, and about really high availability, and about very predictable behavior, and that's both in terms of performance and what happens in the field under load. A lot of us involved in building it have had to operate large systems and realize that a lot of both new and old data technologies don't really take that perspective into account that much. Okay. So, so REOC we've had now for a number of years, and lots of companies have been using it really happily to get exactly those things, availability, scalability, and so on. Okay. But then a funny thing happened early this year, um, which is that a couple of our customers were saying, well, 
you know, we're, we're getting into this cloud thing and we really need object storage. And, you know, we're not, you know, for whatever reason, you know, seeing anything that fits our needs. We really want something that's just like our own S3. And, you know, after we heard that, you know, the second or third time, you know, the light bulb kind of went off and we realized that in React we had built 80% of that. So we sort of pivoted a, a bit, not in the sense of recovering from something not working, but just in terms of changing our intended product strategy a little and built React CS around React. And so as opposed to React, which is a database, React CS uses React for its data storage, but it's more intended to be run as a service. And it really is essentially a run-your-own-S3 sort of a product. Okay. So CS being like cloud uh, cloud storage. Uh, Precisely. Okay. So, uh, you know, so you bring up, you bring up a whole bunch of interesting things um, from from a technology perspective. So let me let me touch on the database side of things first. Um, so when you start talking about distributed systems, um, you know, obviously you're, you're going to start getting into when we can we can dive into the, you know the relational databases versus non-relational. Um, but but even at a really basic level, when you're talking about distributed systems, um, what are you getting into? What are you seeing people get into in terms of say like the number of machines that they typically are going to are, are dealing with in terms of trying to provide availability. And then what do you start to see commonly in terms of like physical distribution? Is it, is it, a, is it, you know, multiple locations? Is it just typically multiple racks for, for availability or what's, you know, as you're dealing with some of these, you know, your customers, what does their environment typically look like? Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting couple of questions. Um, and I think a lot of people get stars in their eyes when they start looking at all these distributed systems and start thinking of, you know, running something, even if they don't know what, on, you know, a whole data center full of machines. And right, right, right. In reality, especially if you're talking about a database, right, you're generally, you know, you're not Facebook, you're not Google, but you might be a business with a bunch of work that needs to get done. And so while there are some much larger deployments, you know, the average cluster out there of React is, I think, somewhere between 15 and 20 machines. And, you know, if you do the math on, you know, packing a few decent modern disk drives into each machine, that's actually a pretty darn large database. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a, a little bit of a reality check. While there are people that go much larger, uh, both with React and with, you know, all sorts of other systems, most businesses... Today, even in this, you know, big whole big data excitement that's the, you know, the current trend, uh, wouldn't know what to do with a, a petabyte of storage if you dropped it on them. So, you know, it's much more common that you see, you know, many terabytes and, you know, a small double-digit number of machines that people really scale out to in the common case. Like I said, there's definitely exceptions, but that's much more common. Okay. And, and so, Justin, tell us a little bit about... When it comes to the, that scaling out concept and adding them, technically what happens with the databases kind of growing and shrinking, and, and what's a little bit of behind the scenes on all of that technology-wise? Yeah, that's a great question. So many parts of React are shaped a lot like the system that Amazon described in their Dynamo paper. Um, you know, it's, it's since grown to have a whole bunch of interesting differences. But there's a couple of details there that are really important to the scalability aspect. And so one way of thinking about it is that we actually divide up the possible key space of the whole database into a very large number of pieces. 
And then what we do is we assign all of those pieces to a f to however many machines there are in the cluster. So say we divided it up into you know a thousand virtual database pieces, and you only had two machines. Well, then each one of them would have about five hundred pieces. And then as you add machines, because you've already figured out that granularity, those sort of subunits of the database. We simply, as you add machines, the, they'll take some of those pieces from each of the other machines so that your load can sort of generally spread and gradually spread. So everything kind of fans out over time. Right. And then when you take that and you use a technique called consistent hashing, which I think was actually first used when, at Akamai, where we used it to locate web caches, but it's been used for a bunch of things since then. Um, that allows you to have this indirection layer where you map keys, right, that people are asking for, that people are querying for, to those virtual pieces of the database. Uh, so you have this sort of zero-hop routing from any machine knowing where any piece of data is located just by looking it up. Okay. And and when you, you know, you, you talked about sort of this, this transition, if you will, or, or sort of realization that functionality that was say, in the REOC code could then be either repurposed or, or modified to sort of become an object store. It's interesting to me because, um, you know, the more I kind of explore this space, the more I see this blurring between people who talk about their database as a, as a database, sort of in the application sense, and then more so I, I'm starting to see kind of people use the terminology that their database really is storage. And, I, you know, and to a certain extent, I guess you could sort of say, well, data lives there. If it lives there, it's storage. But like what, what you know? If you were kind of to pull the covers off the system, how much different does a does a NoSQL database look like than a than an object store? I mean, is, are they very very simple? Is it just how you sort of distribute and replicate data, or like how did how did you guys kind of come to that realization that you could make that transition? Yeah, well, there's a few things buried in there. Let's come back later to dealing with the phrase a NoSQL database. Okay. Um, but uh, in in React's case. Uh, you know, what, what people want out of an object store today, what people say when they would talk about storage in the cloud context, um, in and cloud almost anything else besides storage, has really been informed by Amazon, right? Anyone that talks about what the market expects out of any element of cloud that doesn't look to Amazon first is, is missing the point, right? Because that's where the majority of people are now, and so that's what's developing expectations. So people expect the features you get from there, which is actually a pretty simple really, really limited query model, but the ability to do things like stream really large data files, the ability to set access control lists outside the administrator, this is something you typically don't see in a database, right? You can put something on S3, and then you can set an access control list so that you know your friends or your colleagues can see it, but no one else can. That kind of little bit of delegated access control um, and just the fact that this thing is intended to be accessed over the web, over the open internet, instead of locally like a database. So REOC turned out to be really well-suited, and I think some other databases would and some wouldn't, to being the storage layer for a cloud object storage system. Um, right, Because that scalability and availability is something people want if they're going to offer a service like that. Right. But we had to build on top of it to get the large file streaming, the access control model, and things like that that make it look much more like what people expect when they're looking for something like S3. Okay. And and on top of that, 
you know, one of the things I, I hear about about React CS, uh, CS, excuse me, is it is you know S3 API compatible. Uh, you know, it's something that if you're familiar with sort of the public version of S3, this is something that you could you know easily kind of replace or you know not have to change your applications. So I'm, I'm kind of first. First of all, is that that's is that correct? Um, yeah. So okay. that that is correct. Um, I can talk about that, but it sounds like you've got a, an, an actual question. Coming. Well, so I'm I'm curious. So we we've had some folks on the show. Like you know, one of the things that we've we've talked about on the show a number of times is you know this idea of you know for some of the the people that are building cloud stacks and and which API should you write to? You know, you get into these sort of Amazon APIs versus OpenStack APIs and, and other API kind of arguments. And, you know, one of the one of the comments that uh, somebody who was on a couple of weeks ago, a guy named um, Simon Wardley sort of said was, he said, look, you know, there's a mindset that says, hey, you can, you can think about APIs as being this great competitive differentiator. But, you know, any more, kind of like what you were saying is, Amazon is kind of the de facto API. At least you, you look to them. When you guys were thinking about how to design this, I mean, was there ever any thought about you should do anything different to sort of differentiate yourself, or did you just say, "Look, everybody knows how to write to that. We're just gonna we're gonna use this platform, this community, that people that know how to do that." Yeah, it was it was actually really really obvious for us. That was simply what the market was asking for, and nobody, yeah. not a single customer. There's people building their own stuff that might feel differently, but I've never heard a single customer say. You know, don't give me the Amazon API. Simon is dead on here that, you know, it depends on whether you're solving problems for yourself or for the market. Yeah. And, you know, if everyone was starting to build these systems at the same time, then innovating at the API might be interesting. But when the majority of use and customers out there are already using the same one, um, you don't pick it because it's the best. You pick it because it's the one that gives you the least friction to get people to adopt your product. Gotcha. Yeah. Sure. Sort of, okay. Sort of the sort of the old Betamax versus VHS argument. It's all the all the players are already out there. There's no point in, in moving to a different format. So yeah, and that makes sense. I was just kind of curious what what your mindset was in that because we've we've heard other people who say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna try and differentiate based on an API or something like that. Yeah, I I, I get how that's attractive, but. You know, we made most of these decisions by having customers tell us what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I mean, that, it's just that simple. Now, we <clears> don't <throat> try to promise that we will always do 100% of everything Amazon does in the S3 API, because if we did that, they could just, you know, wag their tail a little bit every day and we'd never stop. Right. Right. What we try to do is we're extremely compatible with the majority of the API, right? We try to cover that large surface of it that almost everything uses. But, you know, for instance, we don't have the, yet, the BitTorrent download part of S3. Because customers haven't asked for that, right? Um, so we don't claim 100% coverage. What we claim is really large majority coverage and that it works the way you expect it to if we have it at all. Um, there's actually one time when I got uh, surprised by it very early in our, you know, launching the product, uh, you know, part of how we keep ourselves honest on this is by we use third-party S3 tools and libraries to do our testing instead of our own inter, uh, implementation to the protocols. And uh, one of our first uh, customers of this, which is IDC Frontier, which is a related company to uh, Yahoo Japan. Okay. One of their executives went and 
uh, pointed dragon disc, which is yet another you know consumer piece of software that you can point at an S3 bucket. And it's a little bit like Dropbox, but not exactly. Um, and we'd never touched it before. We'd never tried it. It was something he liked. And he wrote email saying, yeah, I, I pointed Dragon Disk at React CS, and now I'm storing my desktop files in there. <laughs> cool. <laughs> just, just, just worked, huh? That's yeah. awesome, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so we get that effect by, having, by using this API that's already so common. We get interoperability with software we've never heard of. Yeah, that's powerful. That's really powerful. So, so Justin, um, let's talk a little bit more too before we kind of go into NoSQL and some of the other things. That one thing that I've been really curious about with this concept of distributed systems, and and I don't know if the model is different if it's React or React CS, but but talk a little bit about the the architecture of what happens if something fails, right? You, you talked about, you know, everything is fanned out and everything is stored in all these places, but what if one or more nodes fails? What exactly happens in that kind of scenario? Yeah, that's, um, that's actually something that we try to be far more clear and obvious about than lots of other systems, right? You can run lots of data systems across multiple machines, right? People have done sharded, replicated MySQL and things like that, right? The trick is knowing when given pieces fail, what the results are, and how you get back out of that. So one of the things that makes that a little simpler in the case of React is that all of the nodes, all the hosts running the software, are identical within a data center in terms of their role. I don't mean they're all really identical. They're not replicas content-wise. So what that means is your thinking about those failures gets to be a lot simpler. You don't have to think about different kinds of combinations of, oh, what what if a master fails or a name node or a slave or a arbiter or whatever? No, it's just a React node. And so there's actually quite a bit that we expose to the user and operator to give them tolerances. Um, so, for instance, they can choose to have some of their data be available even in cases when not all replicas of that data can be reached. And by the way, when I say available, uh, you know, I'm a distributed system person. That always means write availability. Read availability is not an interesting problem. Um, sure. I'm being able to change the state of your system. And so one of the things that you can choose to do with React, but you don't have to, is to be able to change your data even when you can't reach all the replicas, which is you know kind of heresy from a database point of view. Um, but you know that allows you to have tolerances for certain parts of your application where you would actually rather have some things that are user-facing maybe be a little bit stale instead of having a broken web page or a broken application. Um, and so, you know, with a typical React deployment, for instance, uh, as long as you can reach any one of the three relevant hosts for any given piece of data, you can read that data. Uh, but you can change that. You can change how many replicas are, there are. And you can change how big a quorum of those you have to be able to get to to consider it a success. So the real answer to your question about what happens for you know a given number of nodes failing or a given number of hosts failing is you get to choose, right? There's no such thing as a system that you know never goes unavailable. If all the machines are down, there's nothing happening. But you can turn up the number of replicas and your tolerance for failure, and it's just extremely transparent how many machines will cause what effect when they go down. Yeah, and that's that's really nice because really you can 
plan based on many different factors. You know, what is your comfort level? What is your how many hardware hardware nodes you actually have, considering budget? And there's lots of other factors that could go into that, as opposed to a, a fixed um, kind of recovery plan or a fixed recovery strategy. I like that. That's really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it makes it easier to think about. Just decide how much unavailability costs you, and you can spend accordingly. Yep. Yep. I like that. Very cool. So, um, so bear with us a little bit. Uh, th- this is going to be kind of way below your pay grade, if you will. But give us, you know, for for folks maybe that aren't sort of um, either hardcore distributed system fan, you know, uh, kind of people, or who maybe have some experience, say, on the Oracle side, SQL side, uh, database side. What you know? What, what what's going on in this sort of so-called NoSQL world? What's what's different about these technologies than than people have had in the past with databases? Like you know, what 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 types of new problems are they trying to solve that they kind of had to come up with this new these new approaches that that various people are building? Yeah, sure. So I think probably the biggest uh, common confusion in the software industry about NoSQL is that it's a category and that these systems have something in common. Uh, right. Anytime you ask, you know, which NoSQL database should I choose, you're asking the wrong question and you don't know enough about your own problems yet. Because um, there are no common problems shared by all these systems. They're not actually very common to each other technically. What NoSQL is, if it can mean anything, is it's a movement. It's not a category. Okay. Uh, what I mean by that, you know, since you were talking about people that are more familiar with traditional databases, is that for the past couple of decades, and uh, you know that's about the right amount of time. It wasn't always this way, but it's been this way for a while. We've had an, a bit of what I think was an architectural monoculture in databases, right? Where Oracle, MySQL, Postgres, Microsoft SQL, DB2—they're uh, all basically the same architecture, right? They're all essentially the same system with you know different feature checkboxes, but it's not the SQL part's not the interesting bit. It's that they're all row stores. They all have the same data model. They all have the same replication model. And so we got into this weird situation where anytime someone started a new big software project, they'd make a whole bunch of architectural decisions, right, about programming languages and frameworks and operating systems. But they didn't make any architectural decision at all about the database because they were picking from a set of essentially identical things. Um, And then what I think actually broke this open and created room for this movement was the Dynamo paper, but not because of the technology. When Amazon published that paper in 2007, right, and Amazon is not a company known for wasting money, right? Um, There's a paper that said that a bookseller, right, this is pre-AWS taking off, a retailer that's really cost conscious had to write their own database to solve a fundamental business need around their shopping cart. And that said to a lot of people that the that one architectural choice, that one size fits all, wasn't actually enough. And so now there's this movement going on for the past couple of years, rejecting the idea that you should always make that same set of choices. So the only thing that all these NoSQL databases have in common is that they're all, all different in some way from that set of architectural choices that are shared across MySQL. So what they're good at varies widely, right? Some of them 
are all about making it so the developer can start writing a, a program against it in you know seconds or minutes, but have nothing to do with scalability or availability. Some others, like React, are the other way around. They're not really about making it easier to write your programs. They're making it easier for you to write scalable, robust programs. And so not any set of technical choices that are shared across all of NoSQL. Gotcha, gotcha. So, okay, so, you know, it's one of those things that almost sounds like it, it ought to be sort of a, uh, like a no Oracle movement or like, you know, sort of, you know, like you said, it's 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 the, the not the old sort of architecture, not same decisions movement. So with that in mind, seeing that, you know, you could, you could make a list of the guys, uh, the companies that are, uh, for better or for worse, sort of lumped into that NoSQL. What are the types of problems then beyond that that old model that that people are are trying to solve for? Uh, you know, what 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 are the types of application problems, types of business problems, or even just data set problems that that these newer approaches and, and like you said, they're not all the same. But but what are the types of things that they're able to do, or or flexibility you have that you couldn't do in the past? Sure. So, you know, one thing that's worth getting out of the way before we talk about what it really does for people mm-hmm. is should point out that this stuff is new and shiny. Yep. And lots of people do say, oh, I need to go pick a NoSQL and do pick one. And so there is a lot of use that, you know, I think would be just as well served by Postgres. And that's used across almost any, and, and that's just an example, Postgres, Oracle, pick your, you know, mm-hmm. pick, pick your standard RDBMS. Um, and people choose all of these things, you know, in some cases because they're shiny and it's the thing their friend told them, you'd better learn this or you'll get left behind. Um, you know, but that's, you know, that's starting to fall away now a little bit. Um, so there's a bunch of different problems, right? Some of them are about easier data modeling, right? So, for instance, the Neo4j guys uh, will tell you all day, and they're right in some interesting ways, about how so many software problems are really graph problems in terms of their data structure. And so if they give you a database, you describe all your data in terms of graph shapes instead of table shapes, you can express things in this way that looks like the you know circles and arrows you drew on your whiteboard. Um, so in that case, it's really all about a data model. Um, you know, in some cases, like, uh, like say, MongoDB, um, what they really used was this you know, query model and actually really more the API that is just so incredibly simple to use, right? So within, you know, 20 or 30 seconds of turning it on, you've done a successful query. You can't get that even with MySQL or Postgres, and they've really succeeded wildly at that. Um, and so that allows developers to start building things before they think about their database. That's a big deal. Um with some of the sort of more distributed systems-oriented things in there, like React and Voldemort and Cassandra and things like that, it's really people's need to survive uh, either as they grow or as they have really high availability needs, uh, which is more and more common now, right? Applications simply require that more for lots of reasons, just given the you know demographics and, and market nature of the web. So all the different kinds of problems, right, about you know how you think about your data model, how you might choose not to think about your data model, and how you keep operating under scale and load are all things that people are solving with these. Okay. So when so when you guys are out talking to customers or you're trying to 
you know, kind of guide the community. In essence, I think what I'm hearing from you is you're never talking about no sequel. You're looking for people that are basically coming and saying, look, um, I have problems that, you know, I hope, or I think, you know, a distributed, highly available uh, through distribution, highly scalable, linearly scalable model. That's, that's the big problem that I have. You know, can you guys help me? I mean, is yeah. that is that more more along those lines? That's the discussions you're driving. That's where you you spend your time. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're not trying to sell NoSQL. There wouldn't be much point in that, since you know, like I said, there's nothing. It all has in common. Um, and it's I mean, it's, it's a silly name, right? Nobody thinks that name makes sense, but it's the one we've got, right? You know, it, trying to come up with a better name than that, you know, would be almost as as bright as trying to use a different API than the S3 one, from my point of view. <laughs> in either case, it's the it's the one people are using. Okay. Um, yeah. But so. but no, that's exactly what we go to people and say, hey, you know, if you have this set of problems, you know, maybe we can help, and that allows us to really quickly qualify whether someone needs what we're building. Yeah. Hmm. And, and cool. how do you, and how do you how do you typically know as as you're talking to people? That, that maybe they've they've crossed over that threshold or that they have that problem. I mean, if let so let's say I'm a I'm a current application developer or even a current database. Like, what are the types of I don't know problems or like what what might trigger you to go? Hmm. I, I mean, like, I here's the problem. I I could think about it differently if I'm willing to to try something else. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a bunch of really useful flags that help us see that kind of thing. Um, you know, one of the most obvious ones is that if you look at someone who has a typical relational database, again, it doesn't matter whether it's MySQL, Postgres, something else, and they've denormalized almost all their data in an effort to shard it better or replicate it better or something like that. Uh, that is usually a pretty good flag that they're both prepared to think about something that isn't queried all the way like a relational database since they gave that up when they denormalized. Uh, and that a lot of the time they did that in an attempt to try to solve some of the problems we solved for them out of the box. So that's an example, right? When someone's going to the work of taking all their data and you know re you know storing it in duplicate ways to make querying easier, so that they can do one lookup at a time and things like that. Um, another useful flag is when they might have a typical relational database, but they've put you know, layers in front of it that make it so that they're really only accessing it in a much simpler way, again, to keep the load and pain of scale or availability off the relational database. And the number of layers they've used to shield their actual database from themselves is usually a pretty good flag, too. Okay. Cool. So, so Justin, um, so a couple of weeks ago, Basho hosted an event, RyCon, Um and so, again, kind of to further extend the talking to customers and, and what are some of the kind of unique insights or key messages or core learnings that kind of came out of that conference? Yeah, so, so personally, the biggest thing I saw by it was, I mean, so it, it sold all the way out and then, and then some. We had to have a bunch of our folks, you know, sort of be ready to not be present in order to have the rooms be legal. Um, and, and that's... <laughs> People were hungry. People really fire, fire marshal kicking people out, huh? Yeah, well, they didn't actually kick people out, but maybe they should have, um, in order to be doing their jobs. But it's fine with us that they didn't. Um, but what that really said was, 
you know, there is a real appetite for a distributed systems conference, for a practical, you know, no bullshit, you know, here's what people are doing in distributed systems today. Uh, and I think what that really says is that more and more of the problems people are solving today, whether they realize it when they start or not, are distributed systems problems, right? Um, you know, if you're building something in, you know, name your favorite cloud environment, you know, either you've got a distributed systems problem to solve or you're benefiting from someone that did, or more likely both. Um, but one of the things that I think a lot of the attendees got out of it too is that, you know, there's still a lot of really interesting work to do here in the, you know, overlap of practically making things work, but also, right, really figuring out actually new things. If you look at the talks that, you know, for instance, Joe Hellerstein and Eric Brewer, uh, both of the talks on uh, CRDTs, which are a, sort of special kind of data type that's really good for high availability. Um, there's a lot of this stuff that, you know, you might think of as coming from, you know, theory land, but that people out there building things at companies like, you know, Twitter and Clipboard and things like that are hungry for. So, you know, what it said to us is this is, this is something that matters that might have been getting neglected from a community point of view, not by us, but by everybody. No, that's, I mean, and that's powerful. And, 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 you know, from, from all the feedback that I've, I've read about the conference, it folks like the fact that it wasn't, I mean, obviously it's, it's the first show for you guys. It's still new, but it wasn't driven as being a basho centric uh, show. It wasn't sort of that vendor centric. It was folks, you know, really kind of interested in, in distributed systems, you know, looking to have conversations, looking to share. Um, so that's, I mean, that's really powerful. I mean, you're, cause you know, while you guys are a, there's, there's a, there's an arm of what you do that's for profit. There's also an arm of what you do that's community based, right? So you've got to be able to stay connected with, with being flexible enough to, to, to learn from the community, to give back to the community and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're an open source company. We're a very community centric company and this wasn't, you know, I really think this wasn't in any way something that came across people as like a vendor trade show. Yeah. Those can be good too, but that wasn't what we wanted to give people. Um, you know, I if if we had nothing to do with it, you know, I know that I and a bunch of other folks that I work with probably would have paid our own money to go to this conference, and that to me is the biggest marker of we probably did the right thing. Very cool. Now, you guys all is it is intention to uh, to keep it going, make it an annual event? Yeah, we didn't call it. You know, we we, we tried most of the time to not say anything like first annual because because that sounds a little funny until you do the second one. But, uh, but yeah, that's the idea is, you know, we wanted to see how it went, but it went fantastically. So yeah, the intention is definitely to keep it going. Very cool. Um, so real, real quick, we'll sort of, uh, we're sort of getting close to, we should probably start wrapping this up. So last question. And, uh, you know, we, we never try to put anybody on the spot, but it's always interesting. Um, you know, when, like you said, when things are new and things are shiny and it's, people are kind of learning some things. So, you know, a couple of months ago, um, you guys came out and you created a little bit of a riff. I don't think it was necessarily on purpose. Um, but you talked about extending support, React support to CloudStack, to the Apache project for CloudStack, uh, Citrix CloudStack. And it was at one of those times when, uh, you know, the OpenStack community was, you know, very kind of touchy about, you know, did you pick one? Did you pick another? Trying to position themselves one versus the other, you know, as a as a company, you know, as a database company, I would think you guys need to be as as flexible as you possibly can. Is that? I mean, is, was this really kind of making a statement, or was this more? Look, we'd love to work with 
CloudStack because it's got momentum and we'll work with OpenStack and we'll work with, you know, Eucalyptus or, I mean, or is there, is there kind of more from a technology perspective yep. that would lead you one way or the other? Uh, you know, as much as you might have seen something like that as, you know, picking a side, it, it's really a lot simpler than that. Um, you know, like, like you said, we're a database company. We provide storage. It's fundamental infrastructure and it would be silly of us to make enemies or to choose not to work with everybody. Uh, you know, one of our biggest deployments of React CS, in fact, uh, is running in conjunction with OpenStack Nova, the compute part of OpenStack. And, you know, we intend to keep supporting things like that as well. Uh, what this was really all about with CloudStack was really just about pointing out that we found this very complementary match, this very easy situation where you have products, process, and people that are all really complementary, right? You have a, a compute product and a storage product. You need both for this infrastructure as a service. Uh, we both used uh, the Apache license for open source work. That made it easy. And there was a team that was very easy to talk to and work with, uh, both people in the Apache side and in Citrix. And we have some joint customers and users. And so between all those things, it was just really easy for us to say, you know, we're going out of our way to work really well with this system. That's not at all the same as saying we're not going to work with something else. And in fact, nothing could be farther from the truth. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, it's it, we're in still such early days with all these things that, uh, you know, it absolutely makes sense to, to be able to work with as much as possible. Um, you know, with that, I think, uh, Justin, this has been very, very interesting to us. I think, you know, obviously the technology can get uh, pretty deep. Um, but thank you so much for the time tonight. Um, real quick, uh, Aaron, before you sort of wrap up the show, uh, you got a little bit of news uh, that folks may be interested in. <laughs> I didn't know if we were going to bring it up or not. But, yeah. yes, absolutely we do. Um, so, yeah, I am, uh, as of this week, unemployed. Um, but as of next week, uh, I actually, uh, it's funny you bring up the, uh, the Citrix and the cloud stack and cloud platform at the end there, but I, uh, actually start, uh, in two weeks now, uh, I will be running technical marketing for, uh, Citrix for all of their cloud products. So, uh, yeah, I'm heading over there and, uh, really looking forward to it. Very cool. So you'll be working for Peter then? Yes. Uh, excellent. You're going to be joining a heck of a crew. Yep. That's the plan. <laughs> very, very cool. So, uh, so congratulations. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. You know, as we've, as we've always said, we do the show pretty much, uh, you know, vendor unbiased, technology unbiased. So, you know, some folks have asked if you're still going to do the show. Uh, that's the plan. And uh, the intention is we will still have guests from all walks of life and all sorts of technology. So folks don't need to worry about that. Um, Peter, Peter's been a guest in the show. He's always been very, very cool. So I don't, uh, I don't expect that to change at all. So, uh, yep. Aaron, um, so, uh, why don't you take us home, wrap it up a little bit, and we'll uh, yeah, have a night. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So we are out of time for this week. So, Justin, where can everyone uh, either follow you or find out more about what's going on with, with Basho or, or any of your products or the community? Sure. So Basho is at basho.com, and we are all over you know, Twitter, and we're in IRC on the React channel on Freenode. It, it's pretty hard not to find us, whether you're looking or not. Um, I'm really easy to find. I'm Justin at Basho.com. I'm Justin Sheehy on, on Twitter. Um, you know, if you're not coming across us, then then you're, you've got your eyes closed. There you go. <laughs> cool. 
All right. So if you like the show, please tell a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at the CloudcastNet or on the web at thecloudcast.net where you can find links to everything Cloudcast. That's it for this week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>